0: I'm Arlen Hamilton, and this is Your First Million. I'm a venture capitalist. I started my fund Backstage Capital from the ground up while I was on food stamps. I have now invested in more than 100 companies led by women, people of color, and LGBT founders. After having raised more than $10 million, people often ask me how I did it. I created this podcast so I could tell you my story, and so that together we could go on a journey and speak with some of the most successful people in the world, from all backgrounds and walks of life, to learn how they got their first million. And who knows, maybe I'll reach my first million in personal capital while I'm recording this series. There's only one way to find out. Let's go. Hi, welcome back to Your First Million. This is Arlen. So happy to have you back. This next episode, or this episode, is very powerful, very important. I am going to have it here play without any interruptions, without any ads. I just need you to hear it. So, this is Brandon Anderson from Raheem.ai, R-A-H-E-E-M. AI. It's a company, it's a platform that helps people report police brutality and police behavior in a way that has not been uh, approached in, in this particular way before. And the inspiration for Raheem.ai is an actual person. Brandon's former life partner, Rahim was uh, killed by police very recently, too recently. And though he has a new partner, a very loving partner that we get to talk about, this is obviously something that was devastating and and life-changing. And Brandon wanted and needed to do something about it. So you're going to um, be able to help. You're going to be able to be part of this. Take a listen. Don't skip this one. This one is very, very cool and interesting, the way that they're handling this. And for all you techies, you nerds out there, I call myself a nerd. It's all good, I think, hopefully. No offense. Okay, I'm going to stop. For all you techies out there, you're going to love this, too. It's it's very, very cool tech. And what they're working on building out and what they need help building out, uh, there's a call to action for you. So listen up, listen in, and... Do enjoy.
1: My name is Brandon Anderson, and my occupation is ending police terror against Black people.
0: Tell me about Rahim.
1: Rahim is the independent service for reporting police violence in the United States. We work to amplify the voices of people's stories and how they experience police. We do that in two ways. The first way is we increase the number of reports submitted about police violence. And then we use those reports to lobby policymakers to uh, advance policies that defund police and invest in black people.
0: How long have you all been around? Oh,
1: I founded Raheem in 2016. Uh, on July 4th, so four years.
0: Can you tell me why you started it? I mean, I think anybody with uh, eyes, ears, heart, any of that understands why it exists, but can you tell me why specifically you started it?
1: Yeah, so I started Rahim because I lost my life partner and very best friend to police violence during a routine traffic stop. Uh, And his love was radical, unapologetic, and it completely changed my life. And the police officer who killed him had a long reputation, a long history of being violent. But uh, in my city, in Oklahoma, where I grew up, like most police departments in the United States make it super hard for you to report them. And it's because they make you file a complaint about police in person during business hours and within this short period of time, oftentimes in like 90 days. So. What ends up happening is less than 5% of people report police and report police violence. And so as a result, what ends up happening is the, th- is the same thing that happened with the police officer who killed my partner. He had a reputation of being violent. He was only reported after killing someone. And by then it was too late. Uh, so I founded Raheem for two reasons. One, we want to increase the number of people who report police violence, making it incredibly easy for them to do it, just as easy as ordering an Uber or raiding their Postmates. And uh, the second reason is because policymakers draft policies based on the complaints that they receive to their office. If people are reporting police violence, then the policies are incomplete and they don't fully reflect the experiences of people who might not be able to take off work, walking to a police station, and feel comfortable telling another police officer about a uh, about a crime, a violent crime that another officer has done. So uh, the goal is to increase police, uh, increase the reporting of police violence, and to move people who've been impacted by police violence at the center of the table when it comes to making policy that governs police.
0: And uh, you said. 95% don't go reported, this is a little bit of a side question, but I, th- I know some people listening will will feel the same way. I've often wondered how we know if they're not being reported, how do we measure that? Is that uh, just a, a collection of data points or how do you know that 95%?
1: So I don't know the methodology, but the Department of Justice in 2013 did a special report that examined a portion of incidents that have happened they came up to the conclusion that about 63 million people interact with police on an annual basis and that uh, a good number of those end up being what they described as negative policing of the people who they had found of from those 63 million incidents found that those negative complaints only 5% of people were actually filing formal complaints against police mm-hmm. officers
0: well, yeah, that, so that blows my mind. That sixty-three million people have to have any sort of interaction with the police officer yeah. in this country. I'm, I'm assuming it's in the country. That that yeah. number alone—I don't, I don't think I've heard that number. You know, that number alone tells you what you need to know. How? Period. Why is that the case? Uh, do you do you today? Because I I do want to go back a little bit on what you said, but I want to make sure I ask this question: Do you today find yourself on the same and in the, in the same way of thinking that police should be defunded? Do you think that do you have a, a a very strong view there? Do you have it where it should be? We should find some nuance to it. Where do you fall there?
1: Uh, I am an abolitionist and I want to live in a world that does not have any police.
0: Okay. And I've heard a lot of great information over the past few weeks about this because, you know, I, ha- I have to, f- this is who I am. I have to find reason and logic to things and I have to weigh different people's opinions and things like that. But, you know, viscerally, I-, I have a very specific opinion myself. I think it may come from the fact that my father, before he passed, was a police officer. I think it might come from that. But, you know, the people who are, f- <laughs> Fool- this is my pa- podcast, so I can say what I want. People who are foolish oh, yeah, enough. You can. People who are foolish enough to think, that by defunding the police, there's no more nine one one. You know, there's no more helping. In fact, I just saw this uh, ridiculous paid ad by the Trump administration, by Trump campaign. That just says, oh, you know, dial in. Oh, uh, you know, I want to report a rape, and there's no way to do it. I want to report a murder, a break in, and all these, and just incredible scare tactics. But we all know, as reasoning, thoughtful people, that of course it doesn't mean that you don't have any sort of protection. Can you speak a little bit to that? What would replace the police? What you know, I'm sure. What would what would be the alternative to having police?
1: Yeah, I can tell you all the ways that I think. When, uh, we could fund. So I know how people experience police pretty regularly because we get about 80 to 100 reports a day from, uh, from active cities across the country where police have harassed or otherwise violently harmed people. And I can tell you all the ways in which people would prefer them not to be called or prefer them not to engage. One instance is we had a few people who reported to us that. They were being harassed for using the bathroom outside, arguing with their partner, or even having sex outside, right? And these are all things that I do. I have sex with my partner. I definitely argue with my partner and I pee, but I got a bathroom. I have a home to do all of these things in. And so instead of giving money to police officers to train them on how to be more compassionate to people living homeless, let's build quality affordable housing. 80% of all the calls that go to San Francisco Police Department, for instance, uh, I think in 2016 or 2017 were what they described as 5150s. These are calls where people are having trouble with mental health. So if 80% of your calls from 911 have to deal with mental health patients, we don't need the police to show up. What we need is a mobile rapid response team of medical practitioners who know how to care and treat for individuals struggling with mental health crisis. When it comes to domestic violence disputes, 40% of police officers are involved in the reported domestic violence disputes. Why? Because when they use, if you live in a world where in order to address conflict as police officers, they wield power and they use that power on the streets. So the way that they solve conflict in the home would probably make exactly the same sense that they use that level of power. So police officers don't need to be dispatched to uh, to homes struggling or having problems with domestic violence disputes. We have social workers, caseworkers, and counselors who know how to do that. It's funny when we start talking about defunding police because <laughs> we've been defunding education for decades. Why does 14 million students go to a school that have police but don't have counselors, psychologists or nurses so we can fund education programs? Right. And then lastly, when you talk about places like New York City, who have spent two hundred fifty six million dollars to employ uh, armed police officers to ensure fair evasion doesn't happen. When the, when the amount that they are losing, losing through fare evasion is $56 million less than that, they're spending more money to employ police as armed security guards at, uh, at every subway stop. They're, they're spending more money on police than they're losing <laughs> in MTA fare evasion. And the number one reason for fare evasion is not because poor people don't, pay mo- uh, don't have the money to pay, which is a problem in and of itself, but it also is the case that The broken machines. New York Times did a piece on it and said that the number one reason was not poor people not being able to pay. It was because broken machines were too broke and people needed to get to work. They cut the line, they jumped the fare, and that was that. So fix the the machines. Don't employ more police officers to catch poor people who are evading fares. So those are five ways we can build quality, affordable housing. We can build a mobile rapid response team of medical practitioners who know how to care and treat for people who struggle with mental illness. We can deploy social workers and caseworkers to homes who are struggling with domestic violence disputes. We can employ more counselors, psychologists, and nurses in order to be in the school and move police officers out of the school. And lastly, we can, uh, uh, other than making transportation free, what we need to be doing is at least at the bare minimum, fixing the machine so people can buy the fare instead of spending $256 million a year in armed security guards. So there are a lot of ways in which I think that we can use that money. And those are just five ways that we see cities spending money. But if you ask this question to the rest of the world, and you allow them to bring their concerns, and you said, hey, we weren't going to spend anywhere from 100 to $125 billion a year in policing anymore. We're going to spend it in the areas that you need the help with most. I bet you that many of those people living in this country will not tell you they need more police. In fact, they will come up with some innovative, uh, ambitious ways to spend that money, $100 and $125 billion. They will tell you themselves in ways in which they can spend that money. And I guarantee you that it won't be on police.
0: hmm well I mean you you just broke it down while you were speaking I I wondered if you have any background or any sort of desires to work in politics or is that what you work in building that that I, po- I know you're doing it on the streets you know you're making the policy you know there but taking it further
1: Uh maybe uh that is something that I thought about but I'm not necessarily caught up on the methodology, but uh, whatever it takes to end police terror against black people, I'll serve in that capacity. So if it's an organizer, I'll be an organizer. If it's a politician, I'll be a politician. If it's a tech entrepreneur, I'll be that, too.
0: Yes. We had someone on the podcast just a few weeks ago, Swati Malavarapu, who has a website that teaches one of the things, many things she does, um, that teaches people how to run for office. And um, I
1: love
0: to yes, the name of the website is, is uh, I've lost it, but I'm going to add it to the uh, episode here. And it's obvious to me and I think maybe my listeners that you, you need to be taking this there. Let's talk more about Rahim. So am I to understand that Rahim is named after your former partner? Yes. So and, and I believe you have a, a current partner. Yes, that's the yeah, case. I do. Is your current partner as um is is there an understanding there must has to be an understanding there that you you know you had this loss and this is what you work on a day-to-day basis again you could answer what you want to but i i just wondered i just wondered if you know that's a very special type of person who can who can work with that
1: oh yeah i mean and i think also having someone who can listen to you uh kind of because because things come up right like when i see when I see the killing of George Floyd or any other person who looks like me, who's black and who's a man, right? And also be clear, like black women get both killed and harassed by police on a daily basis, mm-hmm. right?
0: And, yeah, worse than harassed. <laughs> you yes. know, mm-hmm.
1: so, and, and, and I think that it does require a really special person to be with me and to have, help me sort of process all of that, mm-hmm. right? Um, because uh, we, there was a moment, actually, right here in this room where I had a conversation with him about, about just the little things that we don't get an opportunity to, to talk about. Like, when I thought about how long that police officer had his knee on the neck of George Floyd, eight minutes and 46 seconds. Uh, and that was such a... Um, it, w- it was a long time, but also it was just such a short time to... to for, for all of the investments of, of those people, uh, of the people who he loved and who loved him, such a short time to see him die mm-hmm. with respect. And so like one of the things that I was having a conversation about with him was just going to get like my fiance had braces. And so going to get his braces tightened and we would talk about the pain that he would feel from, leaving the orthodontics office and, and, and I would get him tea, medication for his headache, go to the movies, anything to get his mind off of that. And I, and I remember like that being pain and that being the worst thing we have to deal with in the moment. Right. Think about that. Like that, that was the sort, that was the amount of pain. That was all the pain I thought that I was like ready to deal with,
0: you know, exactly like
1: capable of understanding Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I imagine like those are the times that we don't, like people don't talk about that. Like you don't talk about the amount of love that that mother put in into that body, the amount of time they breastfed that baby, the amount of love it took to get that baby to graduate, you know, preschool, elementary school, junior high, college, high school, the amount of investments you've made to ensure the homework was good. You took them on walks. You, you set him up on your counter and kind of patched his leg up. You went to church with him. The introductions that you made to this person to ensure that everybody saw what you saw in him. Just the level of investments, I think Black people, particularly Black women making Black men, I think that we lose sight of it when eight minutes and 46 seconds is all we have to remember by that person. So when I thought about the tightening of my partner's braces, it kind of brought shit home for me because it was like, wow, like that's, that's all I thought I would have to deal with mm-hmm. in this time, right? It was like mm-hmm. 22, 21 and like that, it's unfathomable that black folk have to live a life where um, like normal stuff like that, like black people are being killed <laughs> as frequently as other folk are having to deal with getting their braces tightened.
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, There's a, a humanity to, that is completely lost in it. And it is sometimes I see it, actually see it happen when certain allies actually, it's almost uh, like that Matthew McConaughey movie where he said, you know, imagine all this, imagine all this, imagine all this. And then imagine she's white. And it's mm-hmm. the thing that you had to say to the person to even get them to, 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 to even get close to understanding it sucks that you had to say it, but it's almost there. Um, There's a humanity that is missing and there's an empathy that I see in you. Um, Can you say what ended up happening with this police officer who took Raheem's life?
1: That police officer is still, the last time I checked, that police officer still patrols a community where my sister lives today. I have a younger sister. She's in her uh, early 20s in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, and that's where he is still on the force. I don't know if that has so i know that he was not fired
0: no it doesn't seem like it yeah yeah still patrolling
1: fired he was still he was now he patrols different neighborhoods because oklahoma city is chopped up into like spencer moore norman oklahoma city and these are all of the sort of cities rural counties Mm -hmm. that operate within oklahoma city and so it's possible that he could have gotten fired from one county and had moved to a different county. But the problem is because there is no central repository of police misconduct that records the incidents that take place in this country, and because police departments are forbidden under law to share information about one police officer to another police department, whether for hiring... Or for any other purpose, it's called the Police Bill of Rights Law. And the Police Bill of Rights Law basically tells us that if you, if you want to use personnel records, uh, it's almost an act of God, right? So the sharing of those personnel records are difficult. And a clear example of that is Timothy Lohman. Timothy Lohman worked as a police officer in a small town called Independence, Ohio. Uh, He was close to being fired, but was asked instead to resign. The police officer who employed him, the police chief, wrote a scathing memo stating that this police officer, Timothy Loman, should not be working. He's emotionally unstable and he's unfit for duty. That's what the memo said. Three years later, he was hired at Cleveland, Ohio, Police Department, 13 miles away from Independence, Ohio. And shortly, I think it might have been just a few days on the job, he ended up shooting and killing 12-year-old Tamir Rice in the park because he was holding a toy gun. Mm-hmm. And the police, age, uh, the police department who hired him had no previous history, uh, had no history of his,
0: uh, of his misconduct. Is it, is it meant to be or supposedly like HIPAA? It's supposed to be protecting your your rights and this and that. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's interesting. Does the organization that you run, Rahim, does it does it speak to? uh Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So we 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 did start talking because I asked about what we can do about defunding. But what are the the two major ways again that Rahim is speaking to this, and and has that changed at all in the last four weeks?
1: Yeah. So. What's most important to us is that the policies that are made to govern police, and typically those policies are to shrink the role of police and then use both budget cuts and resources to fund Black people in all the ways that we had the conversation about previously. Right now, policies are being made with a very small number of complaints. So the, re- the way that policy is made in this country, particularly regarding policing, usually happens after an incident, right? So George Floyd, for instance, Eric Garner, these are two instances where the chokehold or suffocation methods were used to kill a, uh, a Black man. And so what ends up happening is all over the country now, you're seeing advances in policies that have to do with suffocation chokeholds, no strangleholds, and they are completely banning them or they're placing limited restrictions on them. This is the same way that policy is being made across the country. They are taking incidents that take place. They're using those incidents as models and as uh, somewhat as as reasons to shift change and write new policy. They've been doing it for years. It's the way policy is made normally. Now, there are some outliers that say, oh, we don't want what happened in this place to happen here, so let's change it. But nonetheless, it's still an incident that happened either in the city or out somewhere outside of the city that made it back here. And what ends up happening is when people make formal complaints about police officers, policymakers, whether they be city council members or members who occupy the police oversight boards, they are making policy based on complaints that are filed to them. So if a moving vehicle is being shot at, for instance, and someone's hurt, you file a complaint, policies are being made to address those concerns so that some institutional framework of accountability exists. What ends up happening is that therefore, if that is the case, if that's the way we make policy based on how incidents take place in the country, it makes sense that what should be of greatest importance to us is the way with which we hear about those incidents and the way currently the 18,000 police departments in this country hear about those incidents are from formal complaints filed against police officers. Formal complaints filed against police officers, the procedure in most of the 18,000 police departments in this country Require you to go in person to a police station during business hours. And in some places like St. Louis, within 90 days of the interaction happening, or you can't do anything about it. When policymakers, city councils, and members who sit on the police oversight boards review those complaints, they make two judgment calls. One, what can we do to the police officer? Is the police officer acting within policy guidelines? Or is he acting outside of policy guidelines? If he's acting outside of the policy we've set, we will terminate, discipline, and and do whatever it is we need to do with the individual police officer. If the officer is acting within the guidelines of the policy, we need to change the policy. So what ends up happening is that complaints become a bottleneck. To moving policy that's more reflective of the experiences of people most likely to be in harm's way from police violence and also not show up to the police station during business hours within 90 days to report their complaint. So what Rahim's mission is, we say you should not have to go into the police station to file a complaint about an officer. You should be able to do that from your home, and you should be able to do it anonymously if you want to. So what we've done is built an online system that allows anybody in the United States to report a police officer by name, badge number, gender, age, race, and anything else they'd like to report about them. What happened, what time it happened, the location. uh, And they can send that to us. In return, what we do for them is we connect them to a free lawyer, That free lawyer helps them file a formal complaint against the police officer, connects them to a local advocacy organization. So we move them from a victim of police violence to an advocate for police accountability. And lastly, we document their stories if they'd like in local and national news across the country. That's what we do in the immediate term for every individual who reports police violence to us on the back end We then turn around and use their story in the aggregate, in this large database of police misconduct, we use their stories to lobby for policies that shrink the role of police and invest in black people. And that's something that we've done for years, now on our second year. So how does the movement currently shape our work? Well, right now cities are cutting budgets and saying, oh, we don't need $125 million to have a bear cat and rubber bullets uh, and tear gas. We can spend that money here. So the way we fit into this movement recently is that we've been helping cities prioritize the needs of community members that lie outside of the need for police. And I think that what we've seen in the short term is that uh, cities are much more receptive, right? and and much more willing to listen to our policy recommendations than they were before. And that's, uh, frankly, if we're being real, we owe that to the uh, mostly three Black queer women who started this movement, Black Lives Matter, uh, who started a movement right now that is the largest protest in world history. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't tell me Black women don't step up. Right. Don't don't tell me that. In fact, they have always been the people on those front lines. So I've I've honestly appreciated the fact that um, that the movement has has really pushed cities to slash budgets and invest in black people.
0: Someone's listening to this. They either relate to it or they want to use the product or they want to support the product, because I know this is a nonprofit. Correct. How do they find you? How do they find Raheem?
1: So. If you want to report police violence to Rahim, go to rahim.org, R-A-H-E-E-M mo rahim.org. Right there in the top corner, what you'll see is a way to report a police officer. If you would like to donate to Rahim, we just launched one week ago, last Thursday, a GoFundMe campaign to raise $250,000 to build the first voice-activated, live-streaming mobile app to track police in real time. That you can find at rahim.org slash terror And since then, we've raised about $36,000 in in our last week. The app will allow you to, uh, let's say, for instance, Arlen, you're being pulled over. And you can say, oh, hey, Siri or Google, I'm being pulled over. The app will immediately begin live streaming video. It will send a text to three of your friends. These are three friends or family members who you've already described you want, uh, you want them to know when you're stopped. They'll get a text message. It'll say, hey, Brandon, Arlen's being pulled over on the corner of 16th and Pennsylvania. Click here to watch. Those three members who you've described as your defense network will be able to see your live stream video and audio of your interaction with the police officer. While that live streaming incident is happening, two things are occurring. First, that video is being streamed to a cloud, so if anything happens to the phone, it's safe. You and your defense network can access it later or during the moment on a different computer or a different device. The other thing that we're doing is we're writing a transcript in the background of everything you and the police officer are saying. So your entire conversation is not just recorded by a video and audio, it's also transcribed through written text. When you are done with that, we ask you to give us a thumbs up or a thumbs down. We just want to know how the interaction went for you. If it's a thumbs down, we, help, we attach the written transcript of your interaction, and we file a complaint on your behalf. And it's just as easy as that. Mm-hmm. In three to five years, we will have built the largest database searchable repository of police misconduct and conduct anywhere in the world. We will use that data to help people verify the risk of police officers. And one of the greatest ways we've been able to do that is we're gonna use augmented reality on the cell phone so that while you are recording, let's say for instance, the young person who was recording, the man who was strangling uh, George Floyd, you will have known that this police officer has 18 complaints lodged against him, has been working at the police department for this long and has cost the city of Minneapolis this much money. And so as you pan and are recording police officers, we will use augmented reality to show you the um, uh, the risk these police officers pose to the greater
0: community. Well, so well that's- that, that, that part it depends on two things. One is that there's still a police department to speak of at that point. Mm-hmm. And the second is that I'm sure a lot of privacy measures have changed. Policy measures have changed to allow that to happen. Uh, it's, it sounds very um, progressive and helpful. And I hope we, get there uh, in one way or the other. And I also, mm-hmm. while you were describing all of this tech, um, I know that there are some people who listen, many people who listen to this podcast are in tech or they invest in it. I know that in addition to wanting to donate cash, some will say, I want to do in-kind tech work for you. Is there a way mm-hmm. on the website that they can reach out and, and talk to you about that?
1: They can send me an email at brandon brandonatrahim.org.
0: Brandon at Raheem.org. If you are interested in doing some in-kind tech work um, to get to this goal that, that you have. I have um, thoroughly enjoyed this and I know we could talk for another hour. I, I f- often find myself in that position, but I do, uh, we will wrap up. I will say that the website that I was talking about before is arena.run, mm-hmm. as in run for office, arena dot run and i want to see let me just put it like this i'd vote for you i'd vote for you i don't know what the what the position is but i'd vote for you so i i hope i hope that that stirs something in you the same way that you stir up an audience any way it can be helpful please let me know and we will stay in touch and is if is there anything else that you want to say that we did not cover
1: no this has been outstanding terrific thanks so much for having me on it's really
0: an honor I appreciate you, and we'll talk soon. Hey, it's Arlen. Thanks for listening to this episode. So I would love to keep up with you online. You can find me at ArlenWasHere on Instagram and on Twitter. That's A-R-L-A-N WasHere. I cannot wait to continue this conversation with you. Your First Million is produced by Anna Eichenault. Executive Producer Arlen Hamilton. Associate Producer Chacho Valdez.